Welcome to Strange Talk. Hey strangers, welcome to episode 20, Spree Killers. Today I'm going to be discussing a few cases of spree killers. Um, spree killings, or spree killers, also known as rampage killers, are defined as a rampage that involves a killing or attempted killing of multiple persons, at least partly in a public space, by a single physically preset perpetrator using deadly weapons in a single event without any cooling off period. So... Uh, being completely honest, spree killers uh, terrify me the most compared to serial killers. Because serial killers are more methodical. They they sort of, not all, but most of them tend to plan out what they're going to do. And they target a specific group, <laughs> I guess you can say. Like some, most, most serial killers kill um, women um, or they just kill uh, men. But they don't kill like a lot within a certain amount of time frame because spree killers just they don't care they kill whoever and a spree killer could just be anybody who's just mentally unsound or just somebody who's having like a really bad day and just decides you know fuck it i'm taking everybody out i want to make them i want to make everybody's life miserable just the way mine is and that's what terrifies me the most because it ha can happen anywhere um as you'll see from a few of these cases um that i'm going to be discussing and it it's interesting because like I said, it can happen at any time. There, there's a few cases that have happened where, um, it, going back to recently, I think in 2014, there was a couple, they were a conservative couple, I believe, um, and they just decided one day to go into a Walmart, I want to say it was in Nevada, and decide to just shoot up everybody in there. Um, their reason, reasoning behind it was just because they were tired of that, like, um, the liberal uh, media agenda is pushing like this different like I don't I really don't know the details but I can't remember who it was but there it was just crazy because I I saw the YouTube footage because I was on YouTube and I just happened to stumble upon it doing research for spree killers and uh, there's a guy who was actually he was um he had a permit for a weapon and he decided to take action but the thing is he only saw one of the shooters and there was two it was a man and a woman they were both I believe boyfriend and girlfriend or husband and wife. And um, the husband entered first. And so the guy carrying his, um, um, who was armed and allowed to carry his weapon, saw the husband first. So he went after the husband too. And he kind of hid behind some, uh, I believe it was sodas or something, like a, a pallet full of like Pepsis. And he was about to aim and take fire. But then his wife was behind him. And he didn't know because she didn't. He, The husband came in walking with a gun and started shooting in the air when they first entered. And the man that was um, allowed to carry his weapon, who was just a civilian with a um, with a permit to use, use a gun, he was waiting at the customer service area, you know, where like you go to do returns. And so he saw him walking first and he decided like, you know, I'm going to act and do something. And all this is on CCTV footage. And you see him walking in and he follows the husband and he's, he gets his gun out. He's getting ready to, you know, to do something about it. But then the wife walks in behind and he doesn't know because she's, like I said, she doesn't take out her gun yet. She has a bag. And so he's unsuspecting of her. And then she pulls out the gun, walks up behind him and shoots him. So, um, you know, he was, he had good intention, but it sucks because that is the price of, I guess you can say of being a hero. 
Um, it's not like the way they show in the movies. It is not like that you're taking a huge risk, but you know, he did show, I guess, some bravery and that's what happens. But unfortunately, um, there was no heroes in any of the cases I'm going to be discussing. Um, and, uh, just a fair warning this, if you're not uncomfortable with hearing death, uh, you actually don't hear any death. It's just me speaking about what these people endured and what these spree killers did to the people that were in the hands of the spree killer. Um, so I'm going to be discussing uh, three cases, um, and one in particular case is actually very lengthy, and it's it's not super lengthy, but it's quite it's it's kind of uncomfortable to hear, I guess. But um, so you've been warned. So let's get to it. I'm going to start with this first one that took place in 1964. It was the Pacific Airlines Flight 773 was an airliner that crashed at 6:49 a.m. On May 7th, 1964, near Danville, California, the perpetrator was Francisco Paula Gonzalez. He was 27 years old at the time. Francisco was a former member of the Philippine sailing team at the 1960 Summer Olympics and a warehouse worker living in San Francisco. Francisco had been disturbed and depressed over marital and financial issues for quite some time and was deeply in debt with nearly half his income being garnished to pay his various loans. With the stress and financial burden weighing heavy on Francisco, he would constantly say to his relatives and friends that he was going to die on either Wednesday, the 6th of May, or Thursday, the 7th of May. Eventually, on May 6, 1964, Francisco purchased a Smith & Wesson Model 27 357 Magnum revolver through a friend of a friend and boarded a flight to Reno, Nevada. Francisco had shown the gun to numerous friends at the airport and told one person that he intended to shoot himself. Francisco gambled in Reno and told a casino employee that he did not care how much he lost because it won't make any difference after tomorrow. The next morning on May 7, 1964, Francisco climbed aboard the Fairchild F-27 airliner at 5.45 a.m. with 33 passengers aboard and a crew of three bound for San Francisco International Airport with a scheduled stop in Stockton, California. The crew consisted of Captain Ernest Clark, 52 years old, and he was the pilot in command. First Officer Ray Andress, 31 years old, and he was the co-pilot, and a flight attendant named Margaret Schaefer, and she was 30 years old. After crossing the Sierra Nevada, the plane arrived at Stockton, where two passengers deplaned and 10 boarded, bringing the plane's total to 41 passengers. Both deplaning passengers reported that Francisco was seated directly behind the cockpit. It was about 6.38 when Flight 773 lifted off and headed towards San Francisco International Airport. At 6.48 a.m., with the aircraft approximately 10 minutes out of Stockton, the Oakland Air Route Traffic Control Center received a high-pitched, garbled radio message from Flight 773, and the aircraft soon disappeared from the center's radar displays. With Flight 773 minutes from landing, Francisco seated directly behind the cockpit, burst into the cockpit, and shot both pilots twice. Francisco's first bullet hit a tiny section of the frame tubing from Captain Clark's seat. His second bullet struck Clark, killing him instantly. Francisco then shot first officer Andres, critically wounding him. Flight 773, flying at its assigned altitude of 5,000 feet, went into a steep dive of 2,100 feet per minute at an airspeed of nearly 400 miles per hour. The wounded Andres 
made a last frantic transmission as he tried to pull up the plane out of the dive. The flight data recorder showed a sharp climb back to 3,200 feet. Francisco most likely shot Andres again before he turned the gun on himself, causing the plane to go into a final dive. After attempting to contact Flight 773, Oakland Air Traffic Control asked another aircraft in the immediate vicinity, United Airlines Flight 593, if they had Flight 773 in sight. Flight 593's crew responded that they could see a black cloud of smoke coming up through the undercast at 3.30, 4 o'clock position. It looks like an oil or gasoline fire, they said. Oakland Air Traffic Control realized that the smoke spotted by Flight 593 was Flight 773. Flight 773 crashed into a rural hillside in southern Contra Costa County. The plane erupted in flames on impact and dug a crater into the ground. Flight 773's last audio message, which was from First Officer Andres, was deciphered through laboratory analysis and he said, I've been shot, we've been shot, oh my god, help. The official accident report stated that witnesses along the flight path and near the impact area described extreme and abrupt changes in altitude of Flight 773, with erratic power plant sounds before the plane hit a sloping hillside at a relative angle of 90 degrees. After this horrendous incident, there were major changes to airliners. Cockpits now had to be enclosed behind a door, much like the way airliners are today. So essentially, they were already enclosed behind a door. It's just the door was unlocked, allowing for pilots to freely get up if they needed to without worrying about... The- well, that's actually meant for more flight attendants were able to just walk in and walk out. The-, the door was unlocked, but because of that incident, because of Francisco Paula Gonzalez doing what he did, it was now considered regulation to always keep the pilot do- cockpit locked. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Ernest Clark, who was the commanding pilot of Flight 773, had a daughter named Julie Clark. She was only 15 at the time of the incident, but she later grew up to become a commercial airline pilot for Northwest Airlines and, a- and performs aerobactic displays at air shows. So I thought that was kind of a nice little thing. Um, Also, too, I didn't mention it, but uh, in the article that I found about her during the research of the spree killings, um, it also said that uh, her mother had her mother and Ernest Clark's wife, her mother, uh, passed away prior to this incident. Um, So she was effectively an orphan. She didn't have any other siblings or anything. She was just an orphan. And I thought that was kind of sad. (laughs) I don't know why I decided to bring it up now. So this next case I'm going to be talking about um, happened in in Texas in 1991, um, and it's called the Luby Shooting Massacre. The is it the Luby or Lubby? But it's L U B Y. Um, if anybody's from Texas and knows the answer to this, go ahead and let me know. Uh, so we're going to say Luby because it, it could be Lubby. Uh, we'll say Luby. The Luby Shooting, also known as the Luby's Massacre, was a mass shooting that took place on October 16, 1991 at a Luby's cafeteria in Kayleen, Texas. The perpetrator, George Hanard, drove his Ford Ranger pickup truck through the front window of the restaurant. He quickly shot and killed 23 people and wounded 27 others. Ranked at the time as the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history, its death toll was surpassed by the Virginia Tech shooting in April of 2007. 
As of 2018, this this incident ranked as a sixth. This incident is ranked as the sixth deadliest shooting in the U.S. by a single shooter. On October 16, 1991, 35-year-old George Hennard, an unemployed man who had been in the Merchant Marine, drove a Ford Ranger pickup truck through the plate glass front window of a Luby's cafeteria in Kayleen, Texas. Or is it Kayleen? Kayleen, Texas. Hennard yelled, All women of Kayleen and Belton are vipers. This is what you've done to me and my family. This is what Bell County did to me. This is payback day. He then opened fire on the patrons and staff with both a 9mm Glock 17 pistol and a 9mm Ruger P89 pistol. Hennard stalked, shot, and killed 23 people, 10 of them with single shots to the head, and wounded another 27. October 16th was National Bosses Day, and the cafeteria was unusually crowded with around 150 people. At first, bystanders thought the crash was an accident, but Hennard started shooting patrons almost immediately. The first victim was veterinarian Michael Griffith. Another patron, Tommy Vaughn, threw himself through a rear window, sustaining injuries, but he created an escape route for himself and others. Hennard reloaded at least three times before police arrived and he engaged in a brief shootout with them. Wounded, he retreated to an area between the two bathrooms. Patrons were hiding in these bathrooms and had blocked their doors. The police repeatedly told Hennard to surrender, but he refused, saying he was going to kill more people. Hennard was shot a further two times by police in the abdomen. Having no more bullets for the one gun he now held, and with worsening injuries, minutes later, Hennard committed suicide by shooting himself in the head. Hennard was described as reclusive and belligerent, with an explosive temper. He had been pushed out of the Merchant Marine because of possession of marijuana. Numerous reports included accounts of Hennard's experience expressed hatred of women. An ex-roommate of his said, He hated blacks, Hispanics, and gays. He said women were snakes and always had derogatory remarks about them, especially after fights with his mother. Survivors from the cafeteria said Hennard had passed over men to shoot women. 14 of the 23 people killed were women, as were many of the wounded. He called two of them a bitch before shooting them. And um, so if you're interested at all to see any, there's no actual footage of him shooting because I know there's some people that for some reason want to see that type of stuff, which I really don't know why, but hey, you know, whatever to each their own. But um, there's like news footage of it on YouTube so you can see it uh, you can see like the coverage of when it actually happened and everything this next case I'm gonna be discussing is quite the worst one that I researched um, this man was very disturbed but he had a very calm demeanor about himself um, his name was uh, uh, James Huberty and he was a he was pretty <laughs> gone but it, it, it's what's what's more interesting about him is i saw a documentary which you can find on youtube as well but it's in parts so you'll have to find the parts and they're not very in order so you have to do some digging but the documentary is called 77 minutes and it's a very good documentary it was actually created by one of the guys who survived i believe he was just a kid at the time but it was um uh 
It's a documentary. He found all the archival news footage from the incident of the day that it happened. And it's a really good documentary. So if you have the time, go look it up. I'm pretty sure you can find it like on some streaming service, whether it's Netflix, Hulu, or you can rent it off of Amazon or something. But it's it's actually, it was really good. And it's, it's really uh, scary to just know that one minute this family is just a bunch of families and just customers in general are just there and just, um, you know, eating their, their lunch, dinner, whatever, and just chaos just ensues. It, it's just really crazy. But this one is about the 1984 McDonald's massacre. The 1984 McDonald's massacre was a mass shooting that happened in and around a McDonald's restaurant in the San Ysidro neighborhood of San Diego, California, on July 18th. The perpetrator was James Huberty. He killed 21 people and injured 19 others. He was 41 when he committed the spree. Prior to the incident, James had mentioned to his wife, Edna, that he felt he was suffering from a mental health problem. About, about two days later, he contacted a mental health clinic, requesting an appointment, leaving his contact details with the receptionist. He was assured the clinic would return his call within hours. According to his wife, he sat patiently beside the telephone for several hours waiting for a return call until he was fed up with waiting and stormed out of the house and rode to an unknown des destination on his motorcycle. However, James wasn't aware that the receptionist had misspelled his name as Schuberty and his polite demeanor conveyed no sense of urgency to the operator. So she logged the call as non-crisis and to be handled within 48 hours. One hour later, James returned home in a contented mood. After eating dinner, James, his wife Etna, and their two daughters, ages 12 and 10, had cycled to a nearby park later that evening. James and Edna watched a film together like normal, and unfortunately, this was the calm before the storm. The following morning on Wednesday, July 18, 1984, James took his wife and daughters to the San Diego Zoo. During their walk of the zoo, James told his wife he felt his life was effectively over, referring to the mental health clinic's failure to return his phone call from the previous day. He said to his wife, while well, society had their chance, after eating lunch at a McDonald's restaurant in the Claremont neighborhood of San Diego, James and his family returned home. Shortly thereafter, James walked into his bedroom. As his wife Etna lay relaxing on their bed, James leaned toward her and said, I want to kiss you goodbye. Etna asked him where he was going, to which James replied, he was going hunting, hunting for humans. Carrying a bundle wrapped in a checkered blanket, James looked towards his oldest daughter, Zelia, as he walked toward the front door of their home and said goodbye. I won't be back. He drove down y uh, San Ysidro Boulevard. According to eyewitnesses, he drove first toward the Big Bear supermarket and then toward a U.S. post office branch before entering the parking lot of a McDonald's restaurant located approximately 200 yards from his home. At around 3.56 p.m., James drove his black Mercury Marquise into the parking lot of the McDonald's restaurant on San Ysidro Boulevard. In his possession were a 9mm Browning HP semi-automatic pistol a 9mm Uzi carbine, 
a Winchester 1212 gauge pump action shotgun, and a cloth bag filled with hundreds of rounds of ammunition for each weapon. A total of 50 customers were present inside the restaurant that day. Entering the McDonald's, James first aimed his shotgun at a 16-year-old employee named John Arnold. The assistant manager, Guillermo Flores, shouted, Hey John, that guy's going to shoot you, according to John Arnold. When James pulled the trigger, nothing had happened. As James inspected his gun, the manager of the McDonald's, 22-year-old Neva Kane, walked toward the service counter of the restaurant in the direction of John Arnold. Arnold thought this was some cruel joke and began to walk away from James. James then fired his shotgun towards the ceiling before dropping it and then aiming his Uzi at Neva Kane, the manager, shooting her once beneath her left eye. Kane died within minutes. Immediately after shooting Kane, James shot John Arnold, wounding him in the chest. James then shouted for everybody to get on the ground. He, he referred to everyone in the restaurant as dirty swines, shouting that he had killed thousands and that he intended to kill a thousand more. Upon hearing James shouting and ranting and seeing Kane and John Arnold shot lying on the ground, one customer, then 25 years old, Victoria Rivera, tried to persuade James from shooting anyone else, pleading with him from causing any more harm. James then shot Victoria 14 times, shouting, shut up, as she screamed in pain. Most of the customers tried to hide beneath tables and service booths. James turned his attention towards six women and children huddled together. He first killed 19-year-old Maria Colmonero Silva with a single gunshot to the chest, then fatally shot 9-year-old Claudia Perez in the stomach, cheek, thigh, hip, leg, chest, back, armpit, and head with his Uzi. And that's just one person. James then wounded Perez's 15-year-old sister, Imelda, once in the chest with the same weapon, and fired upon 11-year-old Aurora Pena with the shotgun. Pena had initially been shot in the leg and was being shielded by her pregnant aunt, who was 18-year-old Jackie Reyes. James shot Jackie 48 times with the Uzi. Beside his mother's body was 8-month-old Carlos Reyes sitting up and crying. James, James began to shout and killed Carlos with a single pistol shot to his back. And that was just an eight-month-old eight child who he shot in the back. <sighs> James shot and killed a 62-year-old trucker named Lawrence Versulis before targeting one of the families near the play area of the restaurant, who had tried to shield their children beneath the tables with their bodies. Blythe Reagan Herrera had shielded her 11-year-old son, Mado, beneath one booth and her husband Ronald protected 12-year-old Keith Thomas, Keith Thomas under a booth across from them. James began shooting people seated in the restaurant as he walked toward those under the tables. Ronald urged Thomas not to move, shielding the boy with his body. Thomas was shot in the shoulder, arm, wrist, and left elbow, but fortunately was not seriously wounded. Ronald was shot eight times in the stomach, chest, and arm, and head, but also survived. Ronald's wife, Blythe, and her son, Mado, were both killed by numerous gunshots to the head, unfortunately. Nearby, two women had attempted to hide beneath a booth. Guadalupe Del Rio, 24, was against the wall. 
She was shielded by her friend, 31-year-old Articelli Vargas. Del Rio was hit several times in the back, abdomen, chest, and neck, but was not seriously wounded, whereas Vargas received a single gunshot wound to the back of the head. She died of her wound the next day. The only person fatally wounded who lived long enough to reach a hospital. At another booth, Huberty killed 45-year-old banker Hugo Velasquez with a shot to the chest. The first of many calls to emergency services were made at 4 p.m. Although the dispatcher mistakenly directed responding officers to another McDonald's two miles from the San Ysidro Boulevard restaurant, this meant that the restaurant was not locked down until several minutes later, and the only warnings about the shooter would come from passerbys outside in the meantime. Shortly after 4 p.m., a young woman named Lydia Flores drove into the parking lot, stopped at the food pickup window. Flores noticed shattered windows and the sound of gunfire before looking up, and there he was, just shooting. Flores reversed her car until she crashed into a fence. She hid with her two-year-old daughter until the shooting ended. The 11-year-old boys rode their bikes I'm sorry, three 11-year-old boys rode their bikes into the West parking lot to purchase cold drinks, hearing a member of the public yell something unintelligible from across the street. All three hesitated before James shot the three boys with his shotgun and Uzi. Joshua Coleman fell to the ground, critically wounded in the back, arm, and leg. He later recalled looking toward his two friends, Omar Alonso Hernandez and David Flores Delgado noting that Hernandez was on the ground with multiple gunshot wounds to his back and had started vomiting. Delgado had received several gunshot wounds to his head. Coleman survived the incident. Hernandez and Delgado both died at the scene. James next noticed an elderly couple, Miguel Victoria Oola and Ada Velasquez Victoria, walking toward the entrance. As Miguel reached to open the door for his wife, James fired his shotgun, killing Ada with the shotgun to the face and wounding Miguel. A un, a, an uninjured survivor, Oscar Mondragon, later reported that he had seen Miguel cradling his wife in his arms and wiping blood from her face. Miguel shouted curses at Huberty, who approached and killed him with a shot to the head. At approximately 4.10 p.m., a Mexican company a Mexican couple, Alstalfo and Marcella Felix, drove toward one of the service areas of the restaurant, noting the shattered glass. Alstalfo initially thought renovation work was in progress and that Huberty, striding toward the car, was a repairman. James fired his shotgun and Uzi at the couple and their four-month-old daughter, Carlita, striking Marcella in the face, arms, and chest, blinding her in one eye and permanently rendering one hand unusable. Her baby was critically wounded in the neck, chest, and abdomen. Ostolfo was wounded in the chest and head. As Ostolfo and Marcella staggered away from Huberty's line of fire, Marcella was ordered by her husband to give the baby to him before being shot more times by the perpetrator. While running away from the shooter, Marcella returned to her husband and noticed that he was also wounded and did not have her child. Shortly after that, she fainted. She later found out that he had given her to a random passerby. The woman rushed the baby to a nearby hospital as her husband assisted Alstafo and Marcella into a nearby building. All three members of the Felix family survived. 
luckily. Approximately 10 minutes after the first 911 call was placed, the police arrived at the correct restaurant. They imposed a lockdown on an area spanning six blocks from the site of the shootings. The police established a command post two blocks from the restaurant and deployed 175 officers in strategic locations. These officers were joined within the hour by SWAT team members, who also took positions around the McDonald's restaurant. Several survivors later said they saw Huberty walk toward the service counter and adjust a portable radio, possibly to search for news reports before selecting a music station and return to shooting. Shortly thereafter, he searched the kitchen area, discovering six employees. He opened fire, killing 21-year-old Paulina Lopez, 19-year-old Elisa Barbola, and 18-year-old Marquita Padilla, and critically wounding 17-year-old Alberto Leos. Padilla had urged her colleague, 17-year-old Wendy Flanagan, to run before being fatally shot. Flanagan and four other employees and a female customer hid inside a basement utility room. They were joined by Lilos, who had crawled to the utility room after being shot multiple times. When a fire engine drove within range, Huberty repeatedly pierced the vehicle with bullets, but did not wound any occupants. Hearing a wounded teenager, 19-year-old Jose Perez, moaning, Huberty shot him in the head. The boy slumped dead in the booth. Perez died alongside his friend and neighbor, 22-year-old Gloria Gonzalez, and a young woman named Michelle Carncross. At one point, Aurora Pena, who had lain wounded beside her dead aunt, baby cousin, and two friends, noted a stop in the firing. Opening her eyes, she saw Huberty nearby and staring at her. He swore and threw a bag of french fries at her, then retrieved his shotgun and shot her in the arm, neck, and chest. She survived, although she would be hospitalized longer than any other survivor. Occasionally, Huberty blurted out justifications as he shot victims. Police had established a command post two blocks from the restaurant. They initially did not know how many shooters were inside, since Huberty was using firearms of several types and rapidly firing shots, because most of the restaurant's windows had been shattered by gunfire. Reflections from shards of glass made it difficult for police to see inside. A SWAT sniper was positioned on the roof of the post office next door to the McDonald's. He was authorized to kill the shooter and should have and should he have a, should he have a clear shot. <laughs> Can't fucking talk. <laughs> At 5:17 p.m., the SWAT police sniper perched on the post office roof obtained an unobstructed view of Huberty from the neck down for a few seconds through his telescopic sight attached to his rifle. He fired a single round from a range of around 35 yards. The bullet entered Huberty's chest, severed the aorta just under his heart, and exited through his spine, leaving an exit wound one inch square and sending him sprawling backwards onto the floor directly in front of the service counter, killing him almost instantly. The incident had lasted for 77 minutes, during which time Huberty fired a minimum of 245 rounds of ammunition, killing 20 people and wounding as many others, one of whom died the following day. 17 of the victims were killed inside the restaurant and four in the immediate vicinity. Several victims had tried to stanch their bleeding with napkins, often in vain. 
Of the fatalities, 13 died from gunshot wounds to the head, 7 from gunshots to the chest, and one victim, 8-month-old Carlos Reyes, from a single 9mm gunshot to the back. The victims, whose ages range from 8 months to 74 years old, were predominantly, though not exclusively, of Mexican or Mexican-American ancestry, reflecting local demographics. Although James had shouted at the beginning of his shooting spree that he had killed thousands in a comment indicating he was a veteran of the Vietnam War, he had never actually served in the military branch. <sighs> Man, and that's the end of the massacre of 1984, McDonald's massacre. And it's a fucking brutal one. And if you see the, the news footage or the documentary, it's pretty intense. It's a, a pretty intense thing. And that's why spree killers terrify me the most. Because it could just be a guy who's just really fucked up in the head and just decides one day, you know what, fuck it. Everybody's everybody's a target. Because they don't care. It does no age matters to them. You know, they just don't care. And they will take out anybody who's in their vicinity and it's a very terrifying thing for me. And because sometimes, like, when I go to the store, I'm just like, fuck, who's it going to be? I know there's somebody. Maybe it's just because, like, I get paranoid because I, I, I'm into true crime and I, I research a lot sometimes. I'm just wondering, like, this guy's going to be the guy that's going to fucking just blow somebody fucking away and shit's just going to go down. <laughs> so I, is, I wonder if anybody else is like that because I'm kind of like that. Like, when I go to a store, I'm like, okay, if something was to go down, maybe I can exit there. There's an exit here. We can hide here. I I'm not going to lie, I do tend to do shit like that, and maybe that's a problem, because <laughs> sometimes um, I do think about stuff like that, like, okay, if something was to go down, what would I do? Here's how I would do it, or at least here's how I would try to do it, because you don't know until you're just thrusted into that situation, and you experience it, what you would do, because like they like they say, there's that flight, flight or fight, um, I guess, that you get about, you know, when you're in a really dire situation like that an extreme situation um so i wonder if i'd be the flight or the fight sometimes i like to think i'd fight or i'd probably but most likely i probably would i'd probably just run and i just make sure that I, if i'm with my family i try to get my family out of there if i'm by myself i'd probably just try to get the hell out of there but um it's a very scary thing because um now this is just part one mind you there's gonna be a part two because this one's focused um, the next one is going to be about school shootings because that's the sad part about this because I have a daughter and she's only two years old right now and soon school is going to start you know, coming around for her. And that's a very scary thing to be a parent knowing that at any time a student because um, there's one thing I'm going to say about the Columbine shooting. For some reason, if you have... Not her. If you don't know who last podcast on the left is, which I'm sure many of you who are listening to podcasts know who last podcast on the left. They're really good podcasts. They're a hell of a lot better than me, and they're really funny. They're really great. I fucking love them. But if you have not heard that episode, go and listen to their episode of the Columbine massacre, the Columbine shooting. They do a really outstanding fucking job of telling that story. It's really good. But they also said during the research that they found out that the two school shooters, Eric and Dylan, I believe their names is. I don't really fucking care because they're fucking stupid douchebag kids. They weren't bullied. And that was the narrative a lot back then when the incident happened and it occurred. 
was that the media was basically presenting it that like these kids were bullied and that's why they did what they did. When in reality, they weren't bullied like that much to the point where like they it was necessary for them to do this. It, it, as a matter of fact, Eric was a bully himself. He was a fucking douchebag kid that was a bully. But for some reason, they just spin this narrative that, oh, they were just bullied and stuff. So I'm just, I don't know where I'm trying to go with that. I'm just saying is that you have to do the research yourself sometimes too to actually find out. Because I don't know why um, a lot of, well, some of my followers, they have like Instagrams that are dedicated to serial killers. And some of it's kind of weird to the point where like they're actually in love with them. Hey, I'm not really one to judge, but it is kind of strange. Um, but, uh, <laughs> so there's one that I, I, they're kind of in love with the, 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 they kind of romanticize the school shooter. They kind of romanticize, um, Eric and Dylan and it, it's just, and they defend them saying like, oh, they did it because they were bullied, but they're very wrong. They didn't do it because they were bullied. They just did it because Eric was a fucking psychotic individual and just wanted to create chaos. That's why he did it. But a uh, funny side story uh, about people who romanticize um, wicked people. Well, in high school, um, where I live is Moreno Valley, California. And um, I went to Moreno Valley High School. But it wasn't at Moreno Valley High School. That's where I graduated from. Uh, my first high school that I went to was before I moved to Moreno Valley, California. I lived in actually Orange County. Or well, more specifically, Anaheim, California. And there was a sc high school that I went to in Anaheim, California called Western High School. And there was a girl, I don't remember her name, but for some reason she was obsessed with Hitler. And I thought it was the strangest thing. Um, but I mean, I guess she has a point, but it's still fucking weird. She claimed that she was in love with um, Hitler because the fact that he had so much power and he was able to just get this fucking group of like a whole country to follow him which is true okay i'll give her that he did he somehow made it but but not only the, the strangest part about it was the fact that she believed she was a reincarnation of of hitler's wife adolf hitler's wife ava braun i believe it was her name and she truly believed it and i remember one day <laughs> she got in trouble but i remember one day she showed up to class with the armband around her arm with the the um, Nazi symbol on it and she had to go home because of that and in her book because I would talk to her and she showed she showed me in her book she had a bunch of pictures of Hitler a bunch of Nazi symbols and she was like she's a very strange girl <laughs> but if somehow she's listening to this I apologize but I didn't give your name but because I don't really remember it but it's just a fucking, I was very uncomfortable when she first told me that, like, oh, yeah. She was like, you don't like Adolf Hitler? I was like, I don't really care for him. I mean, what he did, he's a monster, what he did. And she just said, no, he's not a monster. He had passion. And I was like, okay, that's cool. All right, bye now. And I, <laughs> but it was really uncomfortable. But thank you for joining me on this episode of part one of Spree Killers. Uh, stay tuned for part two. We're going to be diving into Spree Killers, but mainly school shooters, and possibly talk about the recent um, Spree killing that occurred, which was the Las Vegas uh, shooting 
we're going to be going more in depth than that. I'll be talking about more. It's just um, doing the research on the McDonald's, the 1984 massacre. That actually took up a lot of time. So this is going to be a two-parter. So part two, we'll be diving into more spree killers. So stay tuned for that. And yes, the giveaway is still happening. I'm just waiting to receive all the stuff. So again, I'm going to be giving away a t-shirt. I'm going to be giving away a mug. All of those are both going to have the Strange Talk logo on it. Plus, I'm going to be giving away a Funko Pop along with those two. So stay tuned for the details of how exactly you're going to be able to win those. So don't forget, in order to win those, you're going to have to be following me and everything. So make sure you stay following me on Strange Talk Podcast uh, on Instagram. If you have a news article, because uh, Wednesday is going to be another This Week in Crime where I bring you news articles, interesting news articles, whether they're funny, strange, weird, or whatever. So if you have a news article you want to send my way, you can do so at Strange Talk Podcast on Instagram by sending me a DM, or you can send it to me via email at strangetalkpodcast at outlook.com. Oh, man, so it's been a crazy one, so just be prepared for the next one. Hopefully you guys, maybe you guys didn't think it was brutal, maybe you guys did, I don't know, but I sure did think James Huberty was one fucked up individual. So be prepared and stay safe out there and, you know, you never know when your time's going to come. So as always, stay strange.